from WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Hey, thanks for tuning in. In last week's episode, we focused on human rights. And one of the things that struck me in talking to Adrienne Jensen at the Sullivan County Office of Human Rights was her office's focus on housing issues. I'm not sure if I ever really thought of housing as a human right, but here in the US, it actually turns out it's been considered a basic human right for a pretty long time. In President Roosevelt's 1944 State of the Union Address, he talked about a new Bill of Rights, a framework for a fundamental standard of living that all Americans should have a right to. And sure enough, the fifth item in his list is the right to a decent home. And as it turns out, that was a big deal at the time. Americans had just been through an economic depression that had lasted more than a decade and we were neck deep in a world war. Even for middle-class Americans, things were looking pretty bleak. But in 1948, following Roosevelt's death and the end of World War II, the US signed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, recognizing adequate housing as a component of the human right to an adequate standard of living. And with all that said, I got curious about what housing issues look like in regions like ours, and what steps we're taking to support the right to adequate housing. When I was growing up, I think the idea I had in my head coming from a middle-class family with a relatively stable home environment was that issues like affordable housing shortages and homelessness were problems unique to urban areas. And when you go into big American cities, it only takes a few minutes to understand that housing and homelessness are serious problems there. But up here in the woods, where folks are spread thinly over a large area, these problems are less obvious to the naked eye, and it somehow makes them feel less insidious. But they're not. And one of the problems up here is that there isn't even much concrete data on an issue like homelessness in most rural areas throughout the United States. But we do have solid data on something called cost-burdened renter households. We consider a renter to be cost-burdened if they're spending more than 30% of their income on rent. Right now in Sullivan County, as with many other rural areas, the majority of people live in owned houses rather than renter households. Here, it's about 65%. But when we look at that 35% of folks living in renter households here, almost 90% of them are spending more than 30% of their income on rent in our community, compared to the national average of only 48% of renters being cost burdened. This is pretty staggering, and it suggests that whether or not folks are actually experiencing homelessness, there are thousands of people who might only be one paycheck or one more late payment away from eviction. And this, of course, has serious implications for local youth, our public education system, and our regional economy as a whole. 
So today, let's dive into local housing and homelessness. And I want to start by getting a better sense of the causes and effects of homelessness in our community. So the other day, I sat down with Kathy Kreider. I am the director slash program administrator for Sullivan County Federation for the Homeless. I've been with them just a little shy of 10 years. August will be 10 years. Um, they've been around a lot longer. Uh, they started as a primarily a soup kitchen in 1987 in the basement of a local Grange Hall or church. And through the years, they migrated to this building here. We're on Monticello Street. Uh, building was donated to the Federation some time ago. Uh, it's an old building. It's like me, <laughs> you know, in need of some repair. Um, but we're working on that. We were able to just get a grant through the town of Thompson to pave our driveway and put some much needed drainage in the front of our doors. So we're very happy about that. So we are a primarily uh, community soup kitchen, food pantry. Um, we also have a couple of housing programs. One is uh, the acronym is HAPWA. It's housing opportunities for people with AIDS. So if someone in the home is living with HIV or AIDS, we can provide them with up to 21 weeks in a calendar year of either mortgage, rent, utility assistance, or a combination of those things. We sometimes get what I would call undesignated housing money, which comes through, um, it's called FEMA money, but it's not FEMA in the sense of disaster. It's a different stream of money. And we can use that for a first month's rent or, you know, similar situation, but we don't get it that often. And, uh, we actually have some that's on hold right now. Like we, we know what they tell us we're getting, but we haven't gotten it. And they usually we go through it pretty quick. Um, we don't get that much, we're, you know, in accounting, even though we're rural, you know, there's a lot of need. So but we do the best we can with that. We also have a idea or concept of rescued food. And, uh, you know, we get, we get a lot of the misfit produce here. You go, you go into the store, I go into the store, we see the pepper, we're going to buy the shiny pepper. We're not going to buy one that's damaged or whatever. But two weeks from now, when the shiny pepper has a spot in the drawer in the fridge, what are you going to do? You're going to cut the spot off. You're going to use the pepper. Um, we get the spotty peppers. So we basically have a very small processing kitchen. We use it, we get an overabundance of that type of produce. So for example, tomatoes, we might get tomatoes. You have to pick through all of them and make sure they're good. And then you have to you know, uh, blanch them and peel them, quarter them, put them on a sheet pan, freeze them, and then take them in their frozen state and put them in bags. And then we vacuum package them. And then we use them either for the soup kitchen um, throughout the winter when fresh things aren't that available. And certainly we, we share them with the folks that we serve as well. So Kathy, over the last, I don't know, week or two that we've been communicating back and forth o o over email, I know that it sounds like things for you are very busy at the Federation for the Homeless right now. Are you having staffing issues? Well, going back to when I started, so that was 2012. In 2011, there had been a major grant that the Federation had, it was, I think, a five-year cycle, and they'd had it for two cycles. And it really was the core of a lot of what they did, along with some other supplemental grants. And in 2011, when it came up for grabs again, uh, I became very competitive and they looped us in with some folks. Sometimes we get hooked in with like Albany County or New York City. And unfortunately, they were not able to compete. They didn't do anything wrong. They just didn't write the best grant and they lost it. And when they did, they were going to close their doors. 
and uh, they let go almost all of their staff. And a local patron uh, anonymously donated enough money to kind of limp them along a little bit. And then I came along and I got hired at 28 hours a week, which I've never put in since the day that I worked here. Um, our cook went from full-time to part-time. So we have, right now we have myself, the cook, we have a, a stock clerk that's also like a 20 hour a week job. And then we have uh, someone in the front office who's also a part-time person. And those are our staff. So certainly we're volunteer dependent, but through COVID, we had to be mindful of how many people were in the building and so on and so forth. So we're just now starting to build up our volunteer base again, uh, because for a while we just couldn't couldn't do it. And, and then every time it seemed like we started to let someone in, someone would be sick and we'd have to quarantine, you know, and it's hard. I, I mean, my cook almost passed away from COVID right in the very beginning when we knew nothing about it. Uh, we shut down all indoor service, I think March 13, 2020, the first week of April, he had COVID. We were serving people like through the door, but it wasn't enough. He'd already contracted it and he was very ill and in the hospital and on a ventilator and he's a miracle person. And he's still here, but it gave us a taste very early on of how menacing and how devastating. And But we never closed a day. My husband took my pop-up tent from my yard and put it out there for me with some clear plastic shower curtains. And while my cook was in the um, hospital and recovering, I was the chief cook, bottle washer and all of that. And um, But we never stopped serving. Do you find that despite much of the staff being part-time staff on paper, most people are working more than the allotted hours that they're officially slotted for? Yes. In general, yes. Probably me more than others because I feel like we had a, you know, we have an old building and old things here. And we came, we were closed for Monday, Juneteenth, and we came in on Tuesday and my cook came in and said, you have to come out and take a look at this. And I went out and our whole exhaust fan from the kitchen had come down loose off the side of the building and fallen. Thank God no one was, I mean, nobody goes back there, but he could have been back there. I could have been back there. So we made cold stuff all week um, without cooking. And then I came in over the weekend with the people who repaired it and knock wood, it's repaired. It's up. It's good. It's going to outlive me, I think. But everybody is a team here. So if there's a need, we get a big truck in and we can't get done in time. No one says, oh, yeah, it's 201. I have to go now. I want to zoom out a little bit. Can you talk to me more broadly about the problem of homelessness in Sullivan County? I think that folks who aren't experiencing homelessness or who don't know people who might be experiencing homelessness might not be familiar with to what extent this is an issue in our community. That is a good question, and that is true. The face of homelessness might look a little different here in Sullivan County than, say, in your face. When you're in New York City and you walk along and people are sleeping on the side, you don't see a lot. We see it, but you don't see it the way you would there. And homelessness is a broad term. If I lose my apartment and I'm sleeping on your couch, I'm still homeless. I don't have a space for myself. And it's a very temporary situation usually and people get very transient and they couch surf they bounce from place to place you know maybe somebody goes and stays with grandma but she's in a, in a senior housing and she's not allowed to have anybody living with her and then she gets in trouble and then she's afraid she's going to be homeless so then somebody has to go from there or we have people that are straight up uh sleeping outside 
especially now. I have one gentleman who, I hopefully he's housed because I haven't seen him all weekend, but he's been sleeping here in two chairs and a blanket. I came in, it was pounding rain the other day, and he was laying there in the pounding rain under a blanket, you know. So there's certainly that. If people don't always see it, it's certainly here. You want to go to the causes of what it looks like? Well, I would say mental illness and some type of addiction definitely rises to the top. Also, people on fixed incomes. You know, we have local seniors who, when we were open, not only came out of necessity, but also out of a social aspect. When we had our dining room open, they would just come to be with someone. Um, but they can easily be home. You know, when you're on a fixed income, you, you can, you're two paychecks away. I feel like the Federation at some time, I mean, is two paychecks away. You know, not right now. We're, we're more stable. But when I first started, I felt like I could, I've been two paychecks away in my lifetime. I think I can understand and feel close to that. Uh, my brother uh, was on a fixed income. He was developmentally disabled to a degree. He had a high school diploma, but he always worked with his back and his hands and never could, you know, get a desk job. And he became ill and had kidney issues. Um, he was working in a chicken plant, you know, in the kill room, slitting chickens throats. And that's what he did. Somebody's got to do it right, I guess. And he was doing it and he got sick. And uh, I was lucky enough to be able to match him for a kidney. I was able to give him a kidney but he was never able to work again physically. He couldn't pick up more than 10 pounds because he was could reject the kidney. And so he went on disability and he was a working man his whole life. And that was a transition for him. And he started coming to the Federation way before I ever worked here because it helped supplement his income. He could get pantry, you know, he could make do. He would come for a hot meal, socialization, whatever it is. And I didn't know that my first eight months here would be the last eight months of his life. And I feel like I was brought here in part because he came here every breakfast, every lunch. And I spent all that time with him that I might not have gotten, you know, so I feel you can call it kismet or fate or divine intervention, but I feel like I was meant to come here. I mean, he had a family network, so he had a support system. He chose to come here because he was trying to be an independent man. If he had failed at that, he could have come home and he had a family here. We have a support network, but so many people do not. And you got kids who are in foster care and they turn 18 and they're out on their own. You know, they get a little bit of counseling and away they go. Um, you get somebody with mental illness and if depending on the severity, it's hard to for people to understand and comprehend the need for them to stay on their medications. Sometimes people with mental illness don't see that what we see. So they don't stay on their meds and because they don't stay on their meds. They, you know, get into trouble and problems. And if they don't wind up in jail, they wind up losing their housing. Do you find that one of the common threads in the causes of homelessness is mental illness and a lack of appropriate services and care for people that are struggling with mental illnesses? So absolutely. Yes. And I will caveat to that is I don't know the fix. I don't know that fix. I'm not from that place. And I know that a lot of my colleagues that work here in this county are devoted to their jobs that do work with folks with mental illness and they are trying. And, and I get it because sometimes you, you feel like you're the kid with the finger in the dike, you know, and you just have so many fingers 
and it's money, you know, and rural, rural nonprofits and rural counties in general, it do not get the funding that they should. Um, And maybe people are getting tired of hearing about the opioid crisis because that's all you're hearing now. But if you look at the statistics, our county is in trouble. We're in trouble. I mean, I lost my nephew to it four years ago. And I know firsthand, you know, it's, it's very final. And until it is, as long as someone's taking a breath and walking in and they're here, then we have to do something. And I, you know, and I know people get tired, but they can't get too tired in my humble opinion. I would never say that anybody who's working in that field in this county is doing something wrong. I'm not saying that. They are, they like us, don't have the resources. I think the people who are on the front lines here are doing their darndest, um, but it's not enough. It's not enough. You've mentioned a number of different kind of common threads that might be causing homelessness in our area. In your knowledge and experience, are the threads that are causing homelessness in large part in our area the same ones that you're seeing in you know a New York City, a Los Angeles where, as you mentioned, homelessness looks very different. Well, surely there has to be a common thread. Uh, Somebody that's in the city on disability isn't going to really be much different from somebody up here, Mm. except the rents are higher probably there. You know, Um, on the other hand, there's probably more services. Uh, There are shelters here. We we don't have any shelter. There's no shelter in Sullivan County. There is one in Orange County. um, But if you don't if you're not from Orange County, they're not funded to keep you. You can maybe they'll let you see if you showed up at their door, they're going to let you stay there overnight. They're not going to turn you away. But the next day, they're going to try to send you off to wherever services are best provided for you. Um, our Department of Social Services, their hands are tied in a lot of ways because they have to put people up in motels locally. Um, and there just aren't that many around. And then if you don't have a presence on the motel's grounds, then you can't really monitor who's coming in and out. And there are stipulations and things go wrong. And, you know, um, it's not like a full-fledged shelter where you have transitional services right there. People can go into the office, sit with the case manager. In a perfect world, we would have all those things. And they're working on it. Um, so that's a tough one. And then you put a family of five in a motel room. Well, is that good? Well, it's sure better than sleeping out under a tree. Um, yeah, so it is good. But on the other hand, you're in a room with five kids. You mentioned that providing housing and services to people struggling with homelessness is being worked on in our community. What kind of progress has been made on that and what kind of efforts are underway? Well, I can tell you things that have stopped and started. You know, um, I'll just say... You know what NIMBYism is? It's not in my backyard. That's a big one. When it comes right down to it, that's a big one. The services are needed, and people who are in the power structure know that, but they also have constituents who don't want to see it or think they won't see it, or I'm just going to leave it very broad. I feel that that is a problem. I've seen it be a problem since I've been here. Things have been proposed, things have been closer, things have been shot down over and over. I was looking on the Federation's website and I saw 
a statistic from 2013 listed on there that in that year, the Federation served 38,000 hot meals and another 44,000 take-home meals, which is a, is a mind-boggling amount of food that was going out through your doors back then, nine years ago. You can pretty much How- double that now. Well, first of all, our pantries are doubled. So right there, we used to run a bi-weekly, and now we've been running a weekly. Has the need doubled, or was the need always there and the, the capacity just wasn't there? Food has not always really ever been our problem. Thankfully, the food bank of you know Northeastern New York, uh, we apply for grants every year. And thankfully, every year that I've been here, we've gotten them. And prior to that, that's like the core of our food. And then, of course, you always have local groups, especially at the holidays, but not just at the holidays. There's always somebody doing a drive of some sort for us. So that always supports us. And so food for us, not for the people we serve, but food for us has not really been an issue. But if I don't have money to pay my cook and I don't have money to buy the gas that cooks the food and I don't have money to buy the oil to heat the place, it doesn't matter how much food I have. As we hopefully continue to move past the worst of COVID, um, what else is on the horizon for the Federation? As I mentioned, we got the parking lot done, but our building really needs some work. And so, we, you know, we're going to start a small building fund. Well, we'd like it to be big, but we're going to start small and go <laughs> and build from there. And um, we have one of... Right now we have, uh, we're trying to fix you know, our floors. We need a lot of repair work. Um, nothing's, no one thing stops us from operating, but over time, anything that isn't cared for will, will come tumbling down. So now that we've got the parking lot done and the drainage there, we're gonna start working on you know the facade and different things. That's what we're looking for. Um, and getting folks back inside is really important. If suddenly we could snap our fingers and put you in this position of being like a a benevolent dictator overlord, and you could suddenly just enact any policy you wanted at the snap of of, of a finger, what would we expect from day one in a uh, Kathy Kreider empire to improve the homelessness situation? Well, if I had all that money, I'd make sure no one was sleeping under a tree tonight. I'll tell you that. Nobody would be sleeping in two chairs outside in the rain. Locally, we should build more housing. We should have a shelter. Um, We should have intense case management. There, I'm going to pick one. Intense case management is sorely missing from the equation. What does that Um, mean? It means helping someone facilitate their needs. Like in my home, in my own home, I'm intense case management, right? I make sure that the rent is paid. I make sure the taxes are paid. You know, I make sure there's food on the table. I make sure that my husband gets, I'm my husband's intense case manager. I make sure that he knows what days off he has sometimes. I make sure that his clothes are clean. You know, I make sure that if he has a doctor's appointment, I make the doctor's appointment and I make sure that he remembers the doctor's appointment and I make sure he gets to the doctor's appointment. Those are things that people in crises for whatever the reasons are, are lacking. And are there case managers? There's some great ones. Is there money in this county to fund that? No, you're getting a case manager that has 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 clients. 
how do you intensely serve any one of those folks? You know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So when someone's in crisis, they're about to lose their home, lost their home, they're in the hospital. Well, then you got to help that person in that moment. But as soon as you can try to maybe stabilize them, you got to move on because you can't help it. So I think that's a piece that would really help all of this because I could catch you before you didn't pay next month's rent and help you get back on track. I could help you before you got so sick, you wound up in the emergency room because you don't even have a regular doctor and then you're in the hospital and then you're losing your space and, you know, you can go into rehab and we're going to make sure that, you know, your space is paid for until you come back and you're not going to be homeless when you come out of re- What's the point of going to long-term rehab if when you come out, you have nowhere to go? You know, so that's what I think. Intense case management, more funding for that on all levels for, for agencies like mine, for counties, for hospitals, for whoever needs them. Aside from the homelessness issue alone, counties across New York State have been working to push back on housing blight, which is when vacant, abandoned, or just mismanaged properties fall into disrepair. And the trick, of course, is to do that while also keeping gentrification at bay and maintaining affordable housing prices. To learn about how leaders in Sullivan County are tackling this, I spoke with Jill Wire, the executive director of the Sullivan County Land Bank and the deputy county planning commissioner. The Land Bank Act was created um, uh, 10 years ago in New York State, allowing communities to create a land bank in their community and basically be a tool to um, address vacant, abandoned, and blighted properties. Sullivan County created ours in 2017 and the state approved it. Um, And we had our kickoff meeting in 2018. Um, And our mission is to target vacant, abandoned and delinquent properties and reactivate them um, and get them back into contributing parcels. Um, We're focusing on affordable home ownership and trying to get housing in a condition where we can sell it affordably. So how does the financial stream work then through all of this? Are properties donated and then you fix them and sell them off and then take that revenue? Does it function essentially as a nonprofit? It it functions as both a nonprofit and a public authority. So similar to like an IDA or a CDC, um, but we we straddle both the line of either 501c3 or a public authority to really take advantage of both those laws to allow us to do our work. And land banks don't don't really make a profit. We're created to kind of create the market wrongs and hopefully eventually put ourselves out of business. Um, So we get our properties a variety of different ways. Um, The majority of the properties come through the county foreclosure process. So when the county forecloses on tax delinquent parcels, um, they usually are sold at auction. And so the land bank serves as a tool rather than sell it at auction. Um, properties are transferred to the land bank and then we sell them for the best use, um, not necessarily the, 
highest price. So, but we can also accept um, properties by donation and we can also acquire properties through, you know, a transaction, like just purchasing it as long as it's part of a development plan. So how many properties has the land bank already fixed up and then put back out into the market? And how many properties is the land bank uh, sitting on and working with right now? So to date, we've acquired approximately 68 properties um, and we've sold eight houses to date. Actually, that number's gone up um, because we did just close three more uh, in the last um, few weeks and we have one more home to sell. Otherwise, the majority of our properties we acquired, we demolished. We demolished 25 vacant dilapidated houses. Um, And so now we have about 50 vacant lots that we're looking to redevelop and, you know, figure out what's the best, you know, whether we sell it as a side lot to the adjoining parcel to have a bigger, bigger property, or we can, you know, redevelop it, whether it's for community use or in an instance that we just completed three new constructions. So we actually tried um, building a project. And so we built three new houses, two in Liberty and one in Monticello um, using grant funding to leverage all of the financing. Um, and so it was pretty, pretty expensive, but we were able to build the homes for about $300,000 and then sell them at an affordable rate of about $175. Still a little pricey uh, for most of the, you know, the median income in the county is pretty low. Um, so we'd like to see that number go down a little bit. You know, we were able to help the homeowners with like CDBG grants to help bring that down even further because between the home price and their taxes, you know, we want to make sure the mortgage payment is affordable to them. Is there a particular geographic area where most of these properties uh, exist that the land bank is working with or has already uh, sold off? The land bank is a countywide tool, so we can acquire properties anywhere in the county, but we are targeting uh, Liberty and Monticello, um, the two more urban villages, um, because they are struggling with home ownership rates. They're roughly around 30% um, homeowner, um, and you really like to get that number up so that um, it can create a stable neighborhood. More people who own homes, the more committed they are to the, the neighborhood. So then zooming out a little bit, why is it that we need this service of the land bank, the work that the land bank is doing overall? As in, why do we have so much blight in places like Liberty and Monticello? I guess that's a good question. Um, You know, there's been years of disinvestment, people moving out, um, a lot of conversions of homes into, you know, chopped up into rental spaces. So that's what the land bank is trying to do is kind of fix those market wrongs um, and, and try to get back to that traditional community. And I think a lot of people, probably because of high taxes, moved out of the village. That's why the land bank will take that calculated loss or risk to invest in these communities. Why is there a a greater focus on home ownership over affordable rental units and whatnot? Um, I guess, you know, the land bank's kind of um, an innovative tool. And so we can kind of do um, what, whatever works for the community. I think the properties that we've acquired through the foreclosure, um, 
we've only acquired two multifamily properties. You know, rarely do you see an apartment complex come through the foreclosure process. But, you know, the county is working on a housing plan, you know, wearing my hat as deputy commissioner of planning, we are working on a housing plan to kind of address and see what the needs are. Um, And then maybe that's something that the land bank with the land would be able to build an apartment or, or, you know, build, build multifamily. Um, We just haven't done it yet. Doesn't mean we can't do it. Um, We are also working um, with the old Monticello Manor, the old hospital in Monticello, We are partnering that property along with two properties on Broadway, the old Key Bank building and the old Strong building um, on both sides of the blocks between Landfield and Bank Street. Um, They kind of anchor that block. So we are taking those three properties and working with Rupco and Kearney Development Group to create approximately 70 units of affordable housing. Those are much larger scale projects. And so the land bank, really, the tool is for us to acquire the land and then get it to the responsible developer, you know, um, not necessarily us um, doing that work, but identifying the developers that will commit to doing the projects the community needs. So to keep your uh, planning head on for a second, what is the timeline on that housing plan? We just brought them on a couple months ago, and they are you know, reviewing data right now. Um, we're about to release a website that will have some of the study information, along with a survey for people to um, fill out and tell us their needs. Um, and then it should be probably another three months before this, the study is completed. That's really exciting. I'm, I'm so curious to see how that works out. And I, and I hope that we see lots of, of good data coming out of that. I hope so, because I think like that's what we've learned over the pandemic is that housing prices went up um, and really priced out the locals from being able to purchase. And so we saw a lot of influx people buying um, and just making prices go up even more that, that you know, our residents are struggling to purchase. And even just quality affordable rentals are really hard to find, you know, county, um, the county has people, you know, housed in um, hotels, you know, if there's a fire in the apartment building and the, you know, one apartment is uninhabitable, if it ruins some of the other apartments, they now are displaced and there's really no apartments for people to move into. So, um, you know, there is a, a major need for all types of housing in Sullivan. Now, obviously, the work that the land bank is doing is important. I don't think anyone would ever dispute that fixing up some of these houses in blighted areas to try to create that that kind of domino effect of uh, a nicer communities, you know, that's obviously important. Is it possible, though, that one of the side effects of doing that important work, though, is that it ends up causing home prices to rise further in our community just because we end up having nicer homes in our community? I don't, I don't think so. I don't, you know, I, I think at the rate that we're selling the homes, you know, we, we are pricing them at, at a lower rate so that it's affordable. So that really shouldn't kind of affect the assessment of, of the home. I guess I meant really not for the homes that you guys are actually fixing up, but the homes down the street from those homes where, you know, Joe Schmo was able to to buy a house for $60,000 because it was surrounded by dilapidated properties. Um, 
when those properties get torn down, you know, something new gets built there. And now there's a lovely house with a beautiful backyard and a garden and everything. Is there some world where now Joe Schmo's home price is now $150,000, which would be good for him if he sells it. But Uh uh, now the stock of those cheap homes like his is, is lower. I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on what his reasoning for um, purchasing that house in the beginning was. Was he like an urban pioneer that he wanted to buy there and fix it up? Or, you know, like, I guess it's hard to say, um, you know, what what they were looking to do. But that's kind of, you know, what we're trying to do is fix up the neighborhood so that people can live there. We're kind of the opposite of like that speculator, that person who just buys that property and lets it sit there and hopes that it increases in value. Like we want to see the space activated. We want to see a new homeowner in there. We want to see families being raised, kids going to the school and just kind of creating that community. That's why some people believe that the auction process, you know, does work. Buying a home cheaply at the auction um, is a possibility, but most times it's an investor who's just purchasing that to kind of reap the benefits of being able to buy cheap property and, and turn it into subpar rentals. That that's definitely a market tool. Or that's what some people are doing. But that, you know, the goal of the landmark is to just create an alternate path and be able to have that site control to kind of get the development that the community wants or needs. What are some projects that you are excited for the Lend Bank that are coming down the pipeline next? Can you give us a, a preview? Sure. The Land Bank acquired the Broadway Theater um, at the end of 2020, I believe, um, which is an old abandoned theater that's on Broadway in Monticello uh, that has been vacant since the 90s, I believe, and, and has been on the market. Um, and so the um, you know, it's been put in a bunch of comp plans and different development plans saying that, you know, reactivating this downtown theater could be a a benefit to the community. And so the land bank was able to negotiate with the buyer to purchase it. And we are now working on a redevelopment plan. We have consultants on board, uh, you know, to kind of look to see what the community needs are. We took them around to all the different theaters on Monday and, um, you know, now they're kind of taking all of that data, reaching out to other stakeholders to really figure out how best to reactivate this downtown theater and put it back into community use. So, And the plan is to keep it as a uh, movie theater? Well, you know, it, I originally was, you know, it's a small stage theater um, and then has a screen in it. Um, but that that'll be part of the plan is whether it it's a movie theater, maybe it's a community space that's kind of able to change, whether it's a dance recital one weekend or a chamber music another weekend, and maybe it's a movie theater for a show or two. I think that's what we're just trying to figure out is what can make that space work and what what does the community want? You know, we want to make sure that it's for people in the community, but also, you know, for visitors and everybody else to attend as well. But we really want to make sure that, you know, it meets the needs of of the community in Monticello. What is your vision for the future of Sullivan County through the lens of what the land bank can do for Liberty and Monticello, say, 20 years from now? 
Well, I guess if the land bank does what it's supposed to do, it should be out of business in 20 years. But ideally, it would be to create these community assets, whether it's home ownership, whether it's affordable rentals or quality rentals, whether it's downtown redevelopment that anchors the downtown. We just want to see a, a thriving community. And, and that's kind of what the land bank is, is, is trying to achieve. is hard to capture the complicated essence of these issues in this radio program format, much less a single episode. And sometimes I feel frustrated and a little helpless that we just talk about these difficult and critically important issues like housing on this show without really being able to do much about them. And then I remember that the land bank program, or the early stages of getting a homeless shelter off the ground, all start in this sort of forum, with a conversation. And my sense is that we are not having enough conversations about rural housing problems. And maybe it's because these problems are sometimes hard to see, or because finding solutions to them can be hard. But neither of those are good enough reasons to not keep talking about this. So in the coming weeks, we are going to fold more conversations about housing into this program. Stay tuned. Thank you so much to Jill Wire and Kathy Kreider for chatting on today's episode. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm Leif Johansson, and this is Close to Home, a podcast from WJFF Radio Catskill. Have a great week. Music